Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Satoko Naito. I'm a docent at the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku in Finland. Today, it's my great pleasure to welcome back to the podcast two colleagues, Dr. Nauri Paldema, Professor and Director of the Center for East Asian Studies, and Dr. Herman Obie, Senior Researcher at the Center. They're here to share with us findings from their study on China's so-called mass diplomacy. Thank you both very much for being here. Thank you, Satoko. Thank you, Satoko. So until recently, China has not, at least in my opinion, exuded the image of being a provider of disaster relief or humanitarian aid domestically or internationally. I do remember after the 2004 Indian Ocean earthquake and tsunami, there was some coverage of humanitarian aid from Beijing, although to be fair, they were hardly the only ones providing such relief. Daudi, could you start us off in this discussion by giving us a bit of context, some historical background of China's role in international relief and aid? Yes, certainly. Yeah, I've actually been studying this topic already before the COVID pandemic and from the context of the disaster management in China. I've I've written a book about that and a number of articles. And and then I became interested in the international aspect of Chinese disaster management. And and this is, of course, directly related to disaster relief and uh, disaster aid and humanitarian aid. And in, in general, you are right, China hasn't really been very let's say, visible in this field before the COVID, but it hasn't been totally passive. It, the People's Republic, when it was established in 1949, started to provide disaster aid to selected countries already in the 50s as, as part of its friendly foreign policy towards the decolonialized newly independent nations, mm-hmm. especially in its, its neighborhood. India, for example, received aid several times. But then under, under Mao Zedong, this kind of an international disaster aid became part of, of the Maoist foreign policy and it became quite ideologically based. So China, mm. when it provided any aid, usually provided it only to its ideological friends. And in the end, it didn't have very many of them in, in the 60s. So China was largely passive in in this field. But then, of course, came the reform period with Deng Xiaoping starting late 70s. And Deng also activated Chinese foreign policy in this respect. China started to provide aid not only on ideological basis, but also under other political calculations. So there were more recipients and, and China became more active. But compared to the Western nations, China still was really, really small player in the field. And the states you mentioned there, 2004, the tsunami, here we can actually locate an important milestone in, in the development of, of Chinese disaster relief aid, because in this time, or in this case, now the disaster, also Chinese actually became victims of mm-hmm. it. And this was the really first time China made this kind of a larger effort for relief aid. And it also learned by watching what the others were doing that disaster aid is also a very effective tool of what nowadays is being usually called soft power, a form of diplomacy where you can try to influence public opinions in foreign countries. And it was realized that disaster aid can be a very efficient tool and a 
different form of diplomacy. And China started to build up its humanitarian aid system. And as we come back to this topic, I'm quite sure it, the way it, it governed, it used to be very fragmented. And it still is, but at least it started to coordinate it and started to put more resources to helping other countries. And then came 2008, the Ventuan earthquake, which was also a milestone because it was the first time foreign relief agencies came to China, for example, to rescue and recover people from the ruins, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, and there was a very substantial international involvement in, in disaster aid after the Ventuan earthquake. And, and China once again learned about the power of help, basically. That it, it, we remember 2008, situations were actually rather tense. There were large riots in Tibet. There were the protests against Chinese torch relay for 2008 Beijing Olympics. Relations with foreign countries were rather tense. And then suddenly there was this disaster and the atmosphere changed. Everybody wanted to help China and China opened its doors. And once again, Chinese policymakers learned how powerful this can be to help others into times of need. And after that, they started to put much more resources compared to what they had done before to disaster aid. And you can say that Chinese disaster aid really has taken off into 2010s when there is more resources and, and more policy priority to it. Actually, as part of what we are researching with Herman, we had this kind of a historical data on the Chinese disaster aid from 2013 to 2018, which is best we can do because the, the sources are really scarce. But from this period, we are able to collect the, the public announcements of Chinese disaster aid. And, and we've been analyzing this as, as the historical context of the mask diplomacy. And there are a number of things that stand out there. It's clear that, that China has directed its aid to developing countries. Well, that's not really surprising because it's the developing countries that usually ask for help after they've been struck by a disaster, a natural disaster or an epidemic like the Ebola epidemic in West Africa in early 2010s. Then China does provide quite a lot of help to its neighbors. It's it's clearly an, a dimension, it's its neighborhood policy to, to provide disaster help. For example, the Philippines, with whom the Chinese government hasn't had that good relations recently. Nevertheless, China has provided a lot of disaster relief aid for them, especially during the typhoons and, and, and earthquakes. But not only the Philippines, Nepal, for example, received a, a very massive Chinese aid after its earthquake in was it 2005. So there is this kind of a neighborhood policy there and friendly policy towards the global south, because this is where China wants to be seen as an active leading developing country as it frames itself. And disaster aid is, I think, one of the key policy aspects where we can see China playing out its, its role in the region. But also what we see there is that the Chinese disaster aid was based by and large on bilateral relations. China doesn't really, it's nominally involved in, in multilateral organizations and aid projects through UN mostly, but by and large, it favors bilateral relations. So government to government relations, so that there is this direct official diplomatic dimension to this aid always involved. And then China also favors or, or disfavors certain countries like those that have diplomatic relations with Taiwan. And during this period that we were looking at China hardly, well, it provided very few times any kind of aid to an OECD country. 
Partly this is, of course, explained by the fact that these countries don't usually ask for help. But then when we compare it to the mask diplomacy, then we find that there is a, a, a difference there too. Like we would argue it has become an integral part of the Chinese South-to-South policies in 2010s. And this is basically the background where on the mask diplomacy then builds on. Also, there are a number of features that we can also find later. Chinese disaster aid is not only government to government, but there are a number of other actors that the Chinese use there, especially the Chinese big companies abroad, and then the Chinese diaspora, the mm. overseas Chinese communities are used here. So a number of cases, like in Burma, for example, or the Myanmar, much of the aid is actually distributed through companies and, and local Chinese communities and not officially through the embassy. So China has these networks and, and resources in places, and, and uh, when needed, it can actually mobilize them and use them. And that was already in existence before the pandemic. Right. So China has for some time practiced a sort of donation diplomacy. But with the current pandemic, one unique aspect that I can immediately think of is its global scale. So it's not quite obvious who would or who should receive aid. So who and where were the recipients of aid from China? Yes, thank you, Satoko. I think what's interesting here about looking at COVID-19 disaster relief and humanitarian aid from China, in contrast with what Larry just talked about, is that there's been this very large uh, scope in terms of China's reach and, and also the scale of, of its distribution of not just mask and medical equipment, but also, as we are seeing still uh, today, the, the vaccine donations. And also what is interesting is that uh, historically speaking, China had been mainly focused indeed on the global south or majority world countries. But now with this pandemic, because indeed we were all kind of caught unprepared and because of its sheer scale as well, we were basically overwhelmed and, and we got shortages of different kinds of crucial vital medical goods. China was actually in a unique position to provide this kind of help, first of all, because it was uh, the world's largest manufacturer of medical equipment, especially masks, but also other types of medical devices. And also because uh, it was able to contain the pandemic within a short time frame after the outbreak. And so that enabled the country to redirect this capacity to produce those goods to different parts of the world. But then uh, one issue, of course, that arises when we look closer at the available data, which is very patchy, by the way, because China doesn't officially report most of its aid. And that's been one challenge in our research here is to collect the data in Jigsaw, all the different bits of information that is present online in different scattered parts of the, of the web, like, for example, embassy websites, Twitter accounts of Chinese embassies, different official Chinese websites that publish sometimes only in Chinese, sometimes it's translated in English or other languages like French for West Africa. And this is how gradually we, we are able to kind of piece together a clearer and more comprehensive picture of Chinese aid. But overall, we are still in the process more than a year now after the, the pandemic in trying to, to piece together the, the actual picture of Chinese aid. And this is what makes us actually realize that Chinese aid has been 
rather limited in scale, partly because the size of the nations was actually pretty small if you compare that with, for example, what different UN agencies have been providing thanks to funding from largest donors of the OECD, for example, in Europe, America, and East Asia, like Japan or Korea, where we see a much bigger scale of intervention through the UN and where China is actually a rather small player when we look at its reported uh, funding contributions to the UN. So it appears from our data that actually China has been, uh, in a way, indeed focused mainly on, on bilateral help, but also trying to compensate for its small role in multilateral humanitarian relief by actually trying to amplify the visibility of its aid, which actually also got enhanced by its sheer diversity of actors. Uh, this is something Lauri mentioned, and, and that's even more visible with the COVID-19 pandemic because uh, we, we observed that the campaign uh, initiated by Chinese authorities to help most countries around the world during the pandemic involved a very wide array of actors, first at the official top level, like elite-centric bilateral help, but then also at a kind of meso level with provincial and city governments in China helping sister cities or, or sister provinces that have partnerships or, or agreements with trade originally and that evolved and expanded over time, especially in the context of the Belt Road Initiative over the last 10 years or so. We, we've seen an expansion of uh, all kinds of ties at the commercial and people-to-people -people exchange level, as they call it in Chinese, and also the level of uh, communities. For example, in Italy, we've seen the Chinese overseas diaspora being very active in um, trying to mitigate the several risks that emerge through the pandemic. For example, interestingly, there's been also this grassroots dynamic with Chinese living in Italy, where we didn't see much evidence of the Chinese government trying to control things through its embassies or its commercial networks. But somehow it's been conflated in the media coverage as an overall kind of Chinese campaign. And that is where it gets a bit more complicated when we, we take into account the diversity of actors involved. And this is most likely a case that it was a very fragmented campaign, partly because the number of Chinese actors involved also within China were quite diverse. We, we often assume that Beijing's leadership has this ability to kind of remote control different actors. But actually, if we look specifically at the, the most critical time of the pandemic last year, when there was a dire need for PPE, there was actually clearly very little time available for all these Chinese actors like the Ministry of Foreign Affairs through its embassies or the Ministry of Commerce, for example, or the new development agency called SITCA in Beijing. These actors had too little time, most likely, to coordinate effectively such campaign because the, the need for this medical equipment arose within a few weeks. And then a whole array of Chinese actors available was able to step in. And then later on, interestingly, like just a, sometimes a few days or a few weeks after the Chinese propaganda machinery also was set into motion and tried to kind of create this semblance of a well-coordinated campaign 
And interestingly, this mass diplomacy has pretty much ended in most of the world now, except in Africa, where there are still a number of countries that need those masks and can't manufacture them enough themselves. And, and COVID-19 in that sense is indeed, as the Chinese authorities like to repeat nowadays, the largest ever humanitarian aid campaign China has done since the, the founding of the PRC. But it needs to be seen in, in a proper context of the, the fact that there is a huge funding deficit, as the, the UN and the WHO have pointed out, uh, when it comes to addressing the huge humanitarian needs around the world related to the pandemic. So in that sense, it's welcome to, to see China contributing more, be it in the name of cooperation or competition, regardless of the motives. It is a fact that you know, it's happening in a context of growing Sino-US rivalry. Many OECD countries are seeing China with more and more suspicion because of its lack of transparency, which feeds those suspicions even more. And that makes it difficult for cooperation and coordination in the field of humanitarian aid. You've raised a number of issues. And just one, although it's really crucial, is the lack of transparency about how much aid exactly the Chinese government has provided so if I may ask, then how confident are you about the data you've been able to gather? We definitely overlook some aspects of what happened because it's fragmented and there's no like central authority in China in charge of compiling the data in a unified manner. And there have been a couple of theories trying to make sense of why China is so reluctant to report its aid according to the standards and, and methods, for example, that are used by OECD donors in the Development Aid Committee, uh, which has its shared methodology, which allows for comparison of uh, donations from country to country. And maybe one reason is that Beijing is actually worried that if they were to disclose the actual total amount of aid that they provide to every country, that could increase the, the, the probability of global South countries trying to compete with each other to get equal or, or proportional amount of aid from China. And China wouldn't be in a good position back home to justify this because they still have massive welfare issues like poverty. I mean, they've claimed last year that they eradicated extreme poverty but actually, scholars of Chinese welfare have questioned that based on empirical data showing that a good half of Chinese people, at least who are living under very, very modest conditions. So there is this concern domestically also that might be driving the kind of opacity of Beijing regarding its humanitarian aid information disclosure. We, we can assume, however, that based on the data we've collected so far, that it's quite representative overall of the directions and the, you know, the patterns of Chinese aid. Yeah. And if I may add, there is, it's like this data, it's public. And there is a sort of an irony here that while China doesn't want to really disclose the exact amounts that it is given, it is at the same time because of this propaganda campaign that is this really instrumental part of this whole campaign. It wants to tell the world that it is helping. And I would argue that it's very reliable data in a sense that who is giving and to whom. Like China would not hide the fact that it is providing aid to some African country or the European countries. But at the same time, many times these public reports, it's many times just newspaper reports, but these newspapers are Xinhua and agencies are official agencies. So it is sort of official data there. 
They tend to be quite vague on how much exactly it's given. They tell that this and this country was provided masks and protective goggles and other equipment, but it doesn't tell how much. And then we can also corroborate these same news from the receiver side to see what their news are saying about this. So we are not only relying on China-provided data. And there are also even pictures, newspaper pictures, for example, or videos on these things where Chinese airplanes arrive to airport and there are reception ceremonies. And we can see that crates of these kind of protective goods are being unloaded from these airplanes. So obviously some kind of a donation takes place. But I think one reason why China is often, not always, some cases, these pieces of news do provide quite accurate or at least precise numbers of what is given. But I think less it gives, more vague it becomes. Then it just says that we provided masks to Malawi or something like that, which they did. So there are really these two things that are being balanced out, sort of Chinese willingness and urge to drum their own drum. And at the same time, sometimes there is not that much to tell there, actually. So, yeah, there's this irony of this campaign that a large part of it is really theater. It's about not really what is given, but the way that it is being given and the way it is presented in publicity. They want to have all the PR that is possible to gain through this kind of ceremonies of donations. So. This publicity side is, I think, much more important than the actual impact of the aid that it's being given. Because when we think about the scale of this pandemic and the need for protective gears, etc., and compared to donations that, that have been given by the Chinese, few thousand masks uh, here and there, many times they haven't done any much difference as such, but they've been symbolically important. And the symbolic side, the theatrics of these acts, is something that we have also been quite interested in our analysis because it's exactly there where China gets something back from these donations, the goodwill of the recipients, the good press, and, and et cetera, et cetera. Speaking of the symbolic aspect of the donations, so it seems clear that China was attempting or, or is attempting to paint itself as a global leader, one who was in a good position to provide aid to those in need. So has this image taken hold? When it comes to the effects of China's COVID-19 aid and diplomacy on the image of China, or the perceptions of China, I think it's a bit too early to say, or it's difficult at least to go, because the amount of public opinion polling on this has not been great, at least from a global perspective. There have been a couple of surveys like this PW from the US, which allows for some comparison with previous polls. And there's been also one European poll that was conducted by a team in the Czech Republic. And that was confirming indeed that images of China among most of the European countries was going from, well, bad to, to worse. Like it got more negative basically overall. But that's only for a couple of OECD countries. And I think I remember seeing some more limited survey in scope saying that in Africa, overall, it's been perceived rather positively, whereas in Latin America, there's not been much of a change. And in Southeast Asia, interestingly, this is based on a survey that mostly polled the opinion of Southeast Asian elites. It was actually getting worse for a number of more long-term factors, such as the South China Sea and uh, other disputes that are many perceived through the security prism. 
And that's where it's, it gets interesting because the effect of humanitarian aid are bound to be short-term in a way, because even though there's a speculation in the media that Chinese humanitarian aid can score points and buy goodwill, its effect or influence is bound to be elusive when you want to actually like draw a correlation between the two, because it quickly recedes and fades away from the news cycle and gets replaced by more long-lasting issues that exist between China and its bilateral partners. So I would say that yeah, the effects are a bit tricky to capture overall. If I can sort of continue on the topic, but then taking this to a more general level on, on what China has been doing and basically uh, how China has used its aid as part of its propaganda, then it's pretty easy to say that China has not been in any ways shy on propagating it as the savior of the world. I mean, you cannot say that in any other ways. It has, has used the pandemic as an occasion to basically criticize especially America, but the West in general for their failures in protecting their own citizens and their failures in helping others. And at the same time, emphasizing its own claimed superiority, not only in terms of being able to provide this aid, but also the systemic superiority of Chinese model. So this has been really a prime opportunity for China to propagate itself, especially to the global south, as an alternative to the West. And, and it, it has also seen this as a possibility to somehow credibly show that what China is claiming has some crowding in, in reality, that while the Americans and while the Europeans are vaccinating themselves or helping themselves first, China, and this is what they claim, is helping others best to its ability. And this is also, of course, part of our research theme and topic that we want to really dissect this China's claim that it actually has done great unselfish service to the world through its campaign of, of humanitarian aid. And as we argue, then, well, it was less than meets the eye in many ways. Yes, China did provide help to almost everybody in the world. But we seriously doubt, based on our numbers and our research, that actually made much difference in many parts of the world. As part of China's self-promotion as a, the global savior, and you mentioned their claims of systemic superiority. So, for example, the super centralized government, that's what you mean. Yeah, the question is about really they talk about their model that, mm -hmm. that somehow the Chinese meritocratic approach to development and this kind of an relation that having the same background as a former victim of Western colonialism and being a developing country, which China officially still regards itself as, makes China basically to be the leading member of Global South and therefore in opposition to the North and its selfish ways and, and also in regard to the West to, to, to promote democracy and human rights and, and their model of governance. And then comes this, this pandemic, which shows, according to Chinese, how weak the Western governments are and how, how weak their governance models are in the face of crisis, while seemingly the Chinese model is superior. It can suppress the virus back home. And, and then at the same time, China can provide help to those in need, to its friends globally. So, so this is basically the narrative that China is offering, that the pandemic basically somehow proves its superiority vis-a-vis -vis the Western models. Thank you. We could go on so much longer, in part because this is an evolving situation. You mentioned already 
vaccine diplomacy, which is ongoing. And you're both welcome in the future to please share with us your findings on that particular aspect. But for now, thank you so much for sharing your insights and your expertise. You've given us a lot to think about. Thank you so much, Satoko. Thank you, Satoko, for allowing us to join your podcasts. Thank you. Again, that was Dr. Adauri Paltema, Professor and Director of the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku in Finland, and Dr. Herman Obie, Senior Researcher at the Center. And to our listeners, thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.